Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight, we welcome Kotaku's Heather Alexandra. Hello. We're also joined by PC Gamers, Philippa War. Hello. And finally, we are joined once again by noted dirtbag, Nick Capazzoli. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. As you might have just surmised, today we're talking about some subterfuge. Uh, the Underwater Diplomacy Game and Friendship Ruiner by Ron Carmel and uh, Noel Lopez. Uh, and I guess the easy way to describe subterfuge is it is a bit like the board game Diplomacy with the uh, dystopian exception that it runs on your phone in real time, 24-7, and it never stops until everyone is miserable. Uh, and and even then it continues for a fair old while. <laughs> this is, yes, what are the boundaries of subterfuge? When does the game stop? Uh, does it ever stop after you've started playing it? Uh, these, are, these are all good questions. Uh, so, Heather, you just uh, played your first game of subterfuge recently. And um, you have an undefeated record. I do. It, I was very, very lucky. I don't. So here's my admission for this entire discussion. I still don't completely understand all of the rules of subterfuge because there's a lot of different things about like production and energy and how much you can make of certain things at a certain time. For people who don't know, one of the goals in order for, for like a victory condition is to mine 200 units of Neptunium. And that means getting factories and uh, eventually building mines yourself. And I still don't completely understand the relationship between all those things, but if you build enough, you can win. I This is somehow just making me angrier, actually, uh, because I am <laughs> 0 for 3, uh, by the way. So, like, I mean, this is this is some really frustrating, like, I don't know, I just I just woke up like this, uh, kind of. Uh, There's a, <laughs> yeah. it's like, you know, we're in the middle of March Madness right now, and it's a little bit college brackety, you know, mm -hmm. like we have an office <laughs> one going on, the person that's winning right now, I think they picked Buffalo because they knew somebody, you know, in the first round that went there, and. You know, they had Loyola going for a bit and they never watched a game of college basketball yep. in their life. And here we are. Uh, yeah, so uh, Nick, you're, you're kind of a master, I would say, of uh, micromanagement and minutia of subterfuge. And you've got a good handle on how all of this works. Uh, hasn't necessarily translated into strategic outcomes for you that you wanted, but you sort of end <laughs> up lately. playing your own game. Uh, but why don't you take us through a little bit, like, the sort of overall design of subterfuge and the elements that are in play. Sure, okay. The, so the other thing, there's a little bit of a board game feel to it. It's also a little bit like, well, it's a lot like uh, Neptune's, Neptune's Pride, uh, a game that I, I haven't actually been able to play. But I remember um, uh, Rock, Paper, Shotgun did a, a pretty popular post-mortem of it, I think, back in the day. Um, so, yeah, uh, as Heather was describing, you have outposts, you can uh, convert them into mines in order to generate the, you know, unobtainium kind of thing that you need to win the game. But um, for the bulk of the game, what's going on is point-to-point uh, -point fighting. So you send your subs from one outpost to another outpost. They travel in a straight line for the most part with exceptions uh, to try to capture that outpost. You try to do that to, you know, generate more uh, capacity basically to build more units. Uh, and to catch factories that actually build the units. Um, and then what's going on on top of that, the, the kind of meta layer that I'm terrible at, is uh, there's a, a chat interface that's go that where you can uh, have conversations with as many people as you want or as few people. So you can selectively include people in, in planning and conversations or you can exclude them and uh, use that to kind of, you know, 
figure out alliances and, and who's going to attack who and kind of feel people out and stuff like that. Right. And then um, the other element that sort of, and this is probably the really the gamiest element of this is the fact that these specialists uh, that unlock every 18 hours, is it? Um, uh, yeah, I think it's 16 or 18 or something yeah. like that. Uh, and so the specialists assign special abilities uh, either to a stack of ships that they're with, uh, if they're more like combat-oriented, or they assign sort of a global buff to your entire faction, or they might buff a particular base, or they might just have special effects. Like, for instance, uh, there is a character called the Martyr uh, that basically detonates... Uh, when the Martyr's fleet makes contact with an enemy fleet or outpost, uh, it destroys everything within a certain radius. And it's a good, it's, it's a good way to knock out large stacks of uh, enemy ships if you can get it, to get it to land. But getting things to land in this game is tricky because the game lasts about a week. And so moves and ships journeying from one outpost to another is something that can take like 24 full hours of transit time. And people Very are, easily, yeah. yeah, and people are watching what is happening uh, at all times, depending on how. It, a bit like Fight Club, you kind of choose your own level uh, of involvement. And I think one of the games that uh, I wasn't in but seemed to get more involved than almost any I've ever seen is uh, the one uh, you were in, Pip, uh, a number of years ago. Uh, what's what's the game within the game of, of Subterfuge? Oh, it's it's a weird one because I ended up, I actually learned a lot watching the video back this morning because I had been unable to watch it for the longest time. Um, like I dipped in and out, but I kind of didn't want to know what my friends had done <laughs> to me and behind my back and uh, other than what they actually said that they were going to do. So, um, yeah, that was kind of interesting having a slightly more, um, distanced ability to sort of go back through everyone's, um, uh, ideas and things. Uh, and what, uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me, I'm not sure if this sort of helps answer the question or not, but was sort of, um, what people thought they were doing and then what everyone else thought they were doing off the back of the actions that that actually resulted in and the fact that it something that was quite reassuring was that no one seemed to have a plan that really worked um you know that they weren't predicting people well enough that it was a flawless thing but i yeah it was um it was that that i found quite reassuring because i wasn't just an open book that people could entirely rip apart <laughs> yeah i think the the big war that happened in the very beginning of this last game that me and heather played was started on accident if i am understanding twitter correctly <laughs> <laughs> it was um uh, patrick one of the players had uh he had launched a very big offensive that brought him right up into the bottom of my territory so that i had to deal with him and it turned out afterwards that he had completely accidentally attacked an ally that he had been planning on working with and then just decided to you know just i'm going to commit to it Mm, yeah I think there was also a certain amount of just um that sense of um one of the things that I noticed was people sort of being 
um, valuing particular tactics and things or particular ways of playing. Um, but I think I think Matt Lee's kind of noted at some point that he felt really bad for sort of screwing me over, even though he really should have done, um, like, you know, in terms of game sense, it would have made sense to do so because I think he thought that Paul and I weren't playing well. And I was like, no, no, a core part of my strategy is to look so defenseless and so <laughs> helpless that maybe you don't want to destroy me immediately. <laughs> That's completely viable. I so think. this is one of the weird things. I think by its very nature, because this game is taking place, uh, it starts within an app on your phone, but chances are you're playing with people you know, uh, at least online. And so Subterfuge eventually expands out into, for me at least, uh, like Discord chats, uh, direct uh, uh, Twitter direct messages, uh, you know, the occasional email, uh, snapshots being sent over text. Like Subterfuge becomes this weird thing of like there's the app that we're all using, but then there's also the game I'm playing during the workday when I'm just frantically like exchanging texts with like two or three people. Uh, with like screenshots of our games. And did you know that Joe Scrabbles and um Chris Bratt actually had t-shirts printed <laughs> for the Nice Alliance? No. Um, <laughs> we were at an awards ceremony one evening and um like uh, Chris Bratt was in a really smart shirt and suit combo and then he sort of undoes a couple of the buttons and in a sort of Superman style thing he shows me that he's got the Nice Alliance t-shirt on underneath. Oh my god! <laughs> this is like a hail Hydra kind of thing. So this it is was, um, uh, intense. <laughs> and so this is this whole playthrough was sort of immortalized on the Video Ghosts series. Uh, there's like a good what is it about two hours, three hours of. Uh, of, of it's like, it's in seven parts, I think, isn't yeah. it? It's, uh, yeah, I'd forgotten it was that many, um, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so and, it's pretty involved. It's a very reality show. And one of the one of the interesting things as a player, um, I don't know if it's interesting as a, as an observer, but there were whole sort of stretches of people that I didn't really have any sense of what they were up to or their alliances because they were on a different part of the map, and so their whole game world and board was so unfamiliar to me that it might as well have been happening in a in someone else's game almost. I was just like, well, Paul and I barely had any contact so what he was up to i was like oh okay none of that happened anywhere in my peripheral vision right yeah. that's definitely something to also mention too is the fact that you only have because you're all underwater and you have a sonar depending on where you're at you only have a certain view of the board at any given time you can have specialists that boost that sonar or you can take more outposts to increase your range but there's a lot of stuff going on on the map that you literally can't see so even so subterfuge also has this feature called like looking in it basically you can fast forward your clock to look into a hypothetical future to see like mm. what your actions would do and to see if like maybe your things would plan out but that only takes into account what you can see also so even when you're making plans or trying to get stock of what other people are doing you have an extremely limited amount of information unless you are somehow communicating um, particularly with neighbors or people in positions on the map that you kind of want to explore or stake a claim on. Um, otherwise, you're, you're almost literally in the dark. Yeah, and that, that's the exquisite thing about it, talking about the 
the fact that the the board is is spaced such that there's almost always at least one person that's completely you're almost never going to physically interact with them because they're just a little bit too far away and it kind of that is like what heather was saying ropes in the communication part of it because if that person starts to really take off and and get a sizable lead then you know it's going to be on you to try to get somebody else to deal with it because you can't do it physically one of the interesting things, and this was the thing that um, what Heather was saying reminded me, uh, is that, yeah, it's when it plays out those future scenarios, it only goes off the information that you have to hand. It doesn't add in extra bits or it doesn't, you know, um, account for the fact that someone might cancel something or redirect something based on their specialists and things like that. And so, but because it does have that scrub forward sort of um, element, it's so easy to lull you into a full sense of oh I know what's going to happen therefore I can maybe go to bed for two hours safely or you know it's it's such a strange thing that then starts to breed this paranoia of kind of but I thought I knew what was going to happen I was so certain and now everything has just changed completely I looked away for five minutes yeah because it gives you that it gives you what seems to be concrete objective data you know you can do a combat preview that shows two subs hitting each other you know on a path or one attacking an outpost and it'll tell you oh no you, you're going to win this because you know he's got this amount of drillers and you've got this amount of drillers and then you can feel very secure in that and then out in the ether beyond the range of your sonar somebody could do what a popular strategy that appears in pretty much all our games now is to send a, a, a fleet of subs that looks like it's going to lose a battle and then uh, right before it arrives, when the other person thinks they're going to win, you turn uh, a unit called a hypnotist into a unit called a king. And the king uh, does a global effect where now uh, the number of subs that you have does an automatic extra one-third damage to the other subs, which is a game changer instantly and can you know, turn a battle that someone else thinks they're going to win. Yeah, the, uh, the pocket king is a popular move. Uh, and... Now, and this is something I love because uh, I've only seen it happen the once, and then apparently the fact that it was happening caused the developers, who I think have effectively like uh, sunsetted this game, like it's not being actively developed or supported and hasn't been in quite some time, but they sort yeah. of released a patch after they'd abandoned it to fix this one uh, like gameplay exploit that really only an asshole uh, w- would abuse. Um. Um, but uh in in previous versions of this game you could stack kings um and one of the worst games i've ever seen was man it's amazing how this this often uh centers on 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 nick here uh nick didn't you have three kings Hmm. at one point and basically become an unkillable uh like cancer within the game (laughs) well uh hmm okay uh, let me let me partition that statement. Uh, yes, I did have three kings. Uh, I think that was due to my playing and forethought, and really shows that I deserved to be the dominant force that I was in that game. Um, I think I actually got a fourth one oh very God. late too. Yeah. Mm. Now it, they were a problem. Yeah, <laughs> but it was it was so funny because it, it it was like I think by the time you'd gotten that the numbers game had turned against you sufficiently that like it couldn't win you the game, but it also meant that like wherever you happened to be, you were, you were going to be unstoppable uh, because basically your your uh, forces were fighting at uh, effectively like d- double to like double or triple strength. 
Um, yeah, and that that effect hits very early in the priority list between the specialists. I think so. Uh, you that whatever if I have three hundred drillers in a force, then it's going to do. Uh, you know, if I have three kings, three hundred damage right off the get to the other right. force, which is really. I mean, it was crazily overpowered. <laughs> this is this is the thing. Like when combat occurs uh, either at outposts or between subfleets, there is a priority order in which specialist effects fire, and it's only after all the specialists have gone uh, that the combat actually takes place. Uh, so, if you have something like the king that inflicts a uh, before the battle uh, like damage bonus against the enemy fleet, that basically means you've cut their power by a third. Uh, before a shot's been fired, uh, and that's uh, pretty devastating. It also means that you can end up with interesting interactions where, um, you know, for instance, somebody might have uh, like a uh, like a general or something that's providing a, a military bonus, and they have a uh, you know a smuggler that causes the fleet to to move very quickly. So it's a very mobile, uh, very efficient fighting force. Uh, but there might be, uh, I think, it's the double agent. Uh, that causes all specialists to switch sides and send yes. fleets back. So you can basically bogart enemy specialists um, and sort of nullify uh, their effect and even steal them uh, from enemy players. So that's another... When you start like getting into the tactics of, of subterfuge, uh, those interactions start being something you have to take into account. But ultimately, this game really hinges on uncertainty. And uh, as, as you pointed out... And I think where I often struggle is um, I get very conservative and I'm like, I'm not going to make plans based on stuff that I do not know for sure is going to happen. So I end up defending a lot of territory that maybe doesn't need to be defended because I'm just not sure of my neighbor's intentions. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do. And it always strikes me that like the really, really good players do know what's going to happen uh, because they're playing people as as much as the game uh and and that's where it gets really interesting because not everyone is playing subterfuge with the same motivations uh no and that's a not weird at thing. all <laughs> some people probably are going into spoil some people just kind of want to survive some people want to just get on like the top three podium like depending on it's so the one thing i learned very quickly in this first game was that everybody like you think that everybody's end goal is to win and like that's not true at all no and it changes and uh, there's um someone who played and i think the last game with uh, me and heather it's uh, one of the regulars is uh, at robot parking on twitter and he did a uh, one of those exploding brain brain memes uh for the game and it was like you know some of the lower ones are like you know having a strong sense of diplomacy and some strong allies that you can rely on. And then, you know, a little a larger, more meta brain is like treating every ally as disposable. And then the last one is playing subterfuge as an utterly inscrutable form of cooperative solitaire, moving players around and factions to compete, uh, complete self-defined objectives that are utterly alien to the design and intent of the game. Uh, <laughs> And I think every game that I've had, at least one person is doing that. And actually, this last one that uh, me and Heather did was, it was so foreign to me. There were people, there was a weird cult that sprang up around one of the outposts that everyone was sending stuff to. This all happened outside of my Sony. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Yeah, I had Uh, Chongos. It's the name of an outpost. Um, And people just started sending stuff to me. It was weird. Okay, so, (laughs) but no, but see, I know why that is. This is the weird thing. So I wasn't in this game, but in the 
previous like set of games that that preceded yours for whatever reason Chongos ended up being like the waterloo of these games like massive events would happen around Chongos so Chongos with within this certain within this one group of people who play together all of the time Chongos has become like I guess hallowed territory yeah I I I feel terribly responsible for this because I, I, I kind of started this cargo cult on accident um i the very i think the first game that i played uh i played with uh jake tucker and um uh he got he got eliminated but uh when he uh died he died with all a ton of stuff uh left in the outpost of chongos but also one martyr so uh <laughs> we had you know Three players were all around there, and we're just eyeing this base that has like all these specialists that we want to steal. Because if you have that hypnotist specialist, then you can ter- turn those specialists to your side. And if you get a big, you know, bundle of them, a dozen specialists, that will change the game. But we're all just kind of like circling it, you know, like sharks. But none of us could actually go and touch it because if you contact the martyr, the whole thing blows up. So we uh, designated Chongos the Jake Tucker War Memorial. Uh, because he just kind of sat there, this ghost of himself with all of his specialists there, and we couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> and then it just kind of snowballed from there to now, uh, yeah, apparently people are, are sending ritualized gifts to the whoever owns the Chongo oh space and stuff like that. It's become completely uh, a mess, and I don't understand it myself anymore. At the end of the game, so everybody was starting to get squeezed. There was another player who was getting a lot of funding. If some people are lower in the game, other players can fund them to increase their minor output so that they can have more outposts and things like that. Somebody who was adjacent to that player was feeling really squeezed, and they sent their queen towards Chongos, which was my outpost. Um and they were like, hey, can I just like place my queen there? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then I just didn't let them in there and their queen smashed against the shields and they got knocked out of the game. It was like one of the few mean things I did. I tried playing really nice, but uh, I did not want I did not want to give up Chongos. I have to I have to take issue with um, Heather's characterization of her her method of play okay. <laughs> in our game. Because, uh, she says, um, uh, so in in her piece, uh, by the way, the captain really. Are you she, are I, you the captain? I am. He's one hundred percent the captain. <laughs> oh god! Uh, so in her piece, she says, uh, "Let's see. Shortly after this, uh, some other events. Uh, other players began attacking the captain." Uh, having kept good relations with the players who also boarded the captain, I initially abstained from fighting until I sent a small force to distract him from my allies. In time, the captain was contained to a single outpost. Now, what what she did there was elide the part where she took over like six of my outposts. They just they got you know I got contained to a single one by somebody. It might have been Heather. It might have been other people. But uh, I, I I protest the narrative of the of the good Heather and listen. Game. I I admit that that phrase in time is doing a lot of lifting. <laughs> so I mean, but this this is the the funny thing as well. Uh, there's in addition to like people taking different objectives with them into subterfuge uh people not playing to win people playing to help out a friend or just finish on the podium just there to have a good time and not feel like a monster there's this there is this element of like also wanting to win the narrative of subterfuge like of having a version of the subterfuge story that you are 
comfortable sharing and telling people versus what you know actually happened. And this is this is another weird dynamic I find. And like, it's funny, like I've come to love this game, but at the same time, I've seen things get like heated in some strange ways around around subterfuge. And I've also seen people like do things in that game that clearly on some level they have regretted and felt uncomfortable with. Uh, Pip, did did you see any any of this stuff? Like you said, you were you were sort of hesitant to watch the the uh, video recaps of your game because you <laughs> didn't want to know. And I find yeah. that really interesting, but I also totally understand it. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, it's I. One of the um, hazards of playing this with other games journalists is that you then also read their recaps, and you're like, huh. I see. That's how I found out that Chris Bratt was not what he seemed um, when uh, when I read that. And that's part of why I then didn't want to necessarily watch the, the video series that, that was out. Because I was like, I, I that, that betrayal stung. I'm not sure I want more of these. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was, that was an interesting moment. But actually, um, to sort of go back to what you were saying about people playing for different reasons, reasons um would you say that all of you three were playing to win like how would you characterize why you were even you know involved in the game because mine i guess was that a friend had asked me to play and you know it i wanted to sort of try and do them a favor i didn't think i would win but i you know i i wanted to try and just play and be honest and you know i thought it might be interesting to sort of figure out these things and it was so sad <laughs> <laughs> I, I i always go in playing to win uh i think the last four games that i played it that's that's been uh, kind of put out of my grasp pretty early. Uh, and then, uh, Rob, how did you put it? Do you say that I just want to uh, be in the in the story or something like that? Like, yeah. uh, I have to drag someone else down with right, me? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember my exact phrasing. I was much more bitter at the time and, and, and much more uh, accurate, I think. Um, <laughs> no, but, but it is interesting. Like, I, like... For me, I do play to win. Well, my last game, I punched out of that pretty quickly because the last game I played got very strange uh, because one of my friends who was playing the game uh, played was was very much that galaxy brain uh, part of the um, part of the curve where uh, her motivations are still opaque to me. Uh, I am I am to this day <laughs> uncertain uh, what. Uh, my friend uh, Dialatsina, uh, who's written yeah, for us over say, Waypoint. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, I am to this day <laughs> unclear what was sort of Joker-esque watching the world burn and just like raising hell and what was covering for just ghastly misreadings of how subterfuge worked. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, because I actually think that is entirely possible because uh, this, is, this is a player who... Uh, basically launched their Operation Barbarossa against uh, this other player named Nick. Uh, we'll call him Nixed uh, for the purpose of these conversations, <laughs> um, who's won Wait, pretty much every game I've ever played. And she launched this sort of Operation Barbarossa against him, and she sent me a screenshot. And so as far as I know, at least as of that morning when the attack went off, she was intending to attack. I saw the screenshot, and I realized 
she was attacking everywhere, but this is a game that really only rewards concentration of force. Like, Subterfuge actually hates people making military progress. The entire game is very rubber bandy, very favoring of the defender. Uh, if you've been pretty much wiped out and cut down to a few factories, I think you get production bonuses that cause your stocks of troops to replenish faster than somebody who uh, is sort of spread over a lot of territory. Uh, there's a lot of things yeah. where the game is trying to keep people playing, keep people in the game, and make it impossible for people to launch these sweeping uh, conquests of other players. Dio was trying to launch exactly that kind of sweeping conquest. I describe it as a Barbarossa because that's what she was trying to do. She was basically trying to take like six outposts in one go. But because of defender's advantage and the way the game goes, it was all going to get, with a couple exceptions, going to get wiped out. And Nick was going to be able to weather that storm. It still would have been bad for him because there were other people who were going to pile on. But when, at some point between when she sent me that photo and then, like, the evening when that attack was supposed to hit, she had turned all of those forces into gifts. Uh, So that's something (laughs) you can do with a fleet that's en route you can turn it into a gift fleet and now those become reinforcements for the other player. And yeah. And that effectively put me out of the game. Uh, cause I, I can shed some light on this because Dia was my, my one ally in that game. And, uh, I, we had coordinated to attack next and, um, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm sending messages and, uh, I think I was like, okay, well, we're going to go in six hours, you know, at this mark. And then I'm going to attack these two outposts. And if you could go for this. And then she like Leroy Jenkins within that half hour and sent everything out and, uh, then sent me a message saying like, oh no, I made a ca- catastrophic error. And then at some point after that, turned them all to gifts, which turned the tide, uh, between him and me. Okay. See, yeah. Cause what made it, it could, because what made this impossible to understand as far as like, was this a mistake or was this trolling? is that even before that and then throughout the game, she was also sort of constructing this meta character of herself within the game. Her motivations were completely opaque. Uh, she spoke in, like, cryptic... Uh, like, she, she, she spoke very oh. cryptically. <laughs> uh, she spoke in riddles. And so when she gifted these fleets, I was like, she might have just made a horrible mistake. Or she might genuinely be playing with some motivation that for the rest of my life I will never understand. It haunts you. <laughs> it haunts you to know what some people are doing, what some people aren't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and especially when you've played with them over multiple games, you know, and you start to kind of think you understand, like, their their tendencies. Like, what, I, I think Rob had put it as... Um, yeah, civilization, like leader, you know, tendencies, you have your Gandhis, you have your Montezumas and things like that. You know who, like, oh, I'm next to somebody, they're going to attack everywhere right away. I know someone else is very passive. But then uh, then you have these other people that have these really, really inscrutable kind of meta strategies that have built up over the years now, too, that are uh, really throw a whole wrench into the whole system. Right. And there is an element where, like, uh, Dia in her writing and stuff like tends to comment a lot on she so she's of uh, indigenous descent and comments a lot on like sort of the baked in colonialism and imperialism of a lot of games and so if there's any player who would like sort of puncture the uh, fiction of this all being like we're, we're all empire builders and like elder statesmen it would be Dia. Uh, and so like <laughs> once, once she basically thrown a huge reinforcement to Nick, uh, I was like, I'm not sure there's any way mathematically we can stop him from winning. Uh, and so I kind of just started trying to find a glide path, 
uh, out of the game. But in general, I'm trying to win. Uh, but where I fuck up is that I get very up my own ass about the entire like magic circle nonsense, where it's like, no, the right way to play subterfuge is we are all trying to win. And we are all trying to like get the top spot on the podium and the other spots don't really count. Like what matters is from beginning to end, you are trying to win. A lot of people do not play that way and more successful players understand that and leverage it. And I never do because I approach every diplomatic negotiation believing that the person on the other side is still planning to win at some point. And the truth is, in a lot of cases, after day two or three, there's really only like two or three monsters in the game who still genuinely want to win. And everyone else is just hanging out. Yeah, it really, um, you know, I, 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 I'm a pretty artsy-fartsy critic. And, uh, you know, I, I always subscribe to the belief that there's no wrong way to play a game. And then uh, Subterfuge really uh, tears at that. <laughs> kind of idea because I even you know I uh allowing for some of the war, more obscure strategies and stuff like that you know and, and having fun in it there are still a few things that I'm like a little bit like oh you shouldn't do that you know giving up a mine on purpose and things like that like uh always kills me it's tricky it's so for for me for my own personal experience and my own personal experience is again very limited I just wanted to like survive Right. I, I didn't go into the game necessarily wanting to win. I was like, this is really cool. I wanted to spend time with friends, wanted to play a game with Nick and everything. Um, I thought that was cool. And then I think eventually at some point in Subterfuge, you realize that you have an opportunity and you either take that opportunity or you don't. Um, whether or not that means pushing in on someone's territory or figuring out like, hey, mathematically, like if I time all these things right, like I can win the game. I think a lot of people are playing to win, but even the people who are just kind of playing to be there, I think they're probably tempted at one point or another to kind of finally act, even if they're not necessarily trying to win. Um, it's really strange. It's, it's, it's a real big test of like your own patience sometimes. I think you can oscillate as well because I think um, you know if if someone is playing to win at the start, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know. For example, if they suddenly see themselves sliding down the leaderboard and think, "Oh, do you know what? I'm just going to be a force for chaos at this point because you know I've I've got nothing left to lose, or that will be more entertaining to me in this moment." Or I'm going to just pick a person at random and help them for no good reason. And that puts that other person in a really weird, wait, what, why is this happening? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. where, where did all these ships come from? What's happening? Why am I, why am I suddenly um, now the focus of everybody's attention? And so, but then if, if that person suddenly, for, for whatever reason, if other people resign from the game, if other people get booted out of the game or starved out of the game, like, they might suddenly have to switch back into that oh wait now's my like heather said that that opportunity of oh if i do this this and this i'm actually you know i do have that chance and i could theoretically take that um and something that i sort of wonder would have been different is because i was trying to play it and take it seriously because i thought that that was what um would be I kind of thought that was what would be more fun for my friends because I know that it's super annoying sometimes when someone just plays almost at random, you know, because, you know, if I don't necessarily know the rules or I don't 
want to play a, an acquisition game or to come first or to screw people over like if I'd been playing it for fun for myself, perhaps with people I didn't know or didn't care about hurting, <laughs> I would probably have just picked things at random and done them because of, you know, just things that would have entertained me or just, you know, what are they going to do or what are they going to think when I suddenly decide to do something totally against my own interests from the point of view that they're playing the game? So, but as it was, I decided to sort of try and do it the way that, for example, Quinn's plays. And that was just so counterintuitive and it didn't work out for anybody, I don't think. <laughs> one of the things, and this is this is one of the things that like it makes subterfuge really interesting to me. Because subterfuge makes me think about how we talk about diplomacy in a lot of other settings. Like what we expect from games like this. Like, one of the things I remember is... Um, so Rob Rob Davio, uh, one of his inspirations for Risk Legacy, which sort of spawned this entire like series of uh, board games that change over time, right? Pandemic Legacy, uh, Seafall. Uh, Rob's Rob's a very smart game designer, and uh, you know, personal friend. He's been on the show a bunch of times. But one of his uh, insights that made him make Risk Legacy is it like the idea that every game is a clean slate is a fiction we tell ourselves like it's a, it's a, if you're a game designer you know you have to know that that is also a fiction because after that first game of risk there is a history like generally people are playing with at least some of the same people and so these games we play together there is often like a meta narrative outside of the game uh, that players are bringing into it with them even if it's you know the the simplest one right is like and this could be any game but like if you're playing with your family uh you know if it's like uh you know Oh, dad always wins this game. He's really good at it. Or, you know, watch out for sis. Uh, if she gets an economic engine set up, it's game over. That is still like something we are bringing into the game. And those expectations guide how we play it. What Davio did was like create a system that formalizes it, basically. Now, now the game recognizes that there's a history that builds up and sort of leverages that and codifies it within the rules of the game. Subterfuge doesn't do that. But it is also a game where if you play with a regular crew, it becomes so freighted with history so quickly that I don't know what, subter what, what a clean game of subterfuge even looks like. The very first game I even played, my expectations were completely shaped by people telling me about the history of this group of players and yeah. who was who. And it's this weird thing of we expect... We, in a lot of, in, particularly in like electronic games, we expect these things to be everyone is playing to win. The magic circle is unbreachable uh, with, you know, with metagame uh, context. But if you play Subterfuge or any game that involves other people, that's 100% bullshit. And in a lot of ways, it enriches the experience. Uh, but we still have, like, in a lot of other contexts, we have this expectation that, oh, a good game or good diplomacy system creates a system of perfectly self-interested actors all acting rationally and predictably but any game where you're actually dealing with like people you end up with all this other context all these other hard to parse motivations and you end up with something more memorable well this reminds me of um the games of werewolf that i tend to play sort of at a 
big friend get together once a year and um, it's become a tradition but also part of that tradition is one friend uh, our friend Robin um, just has this reputation for always being a werewolf and so he never survives that first night because regardless it is now tradition that we um <laughs> that we that he's the first one that dies oh, and neck. so we have to sometimes uh-huh. <laughs> we have to sometimes set up these like okay well we really want robin to get at least one game in this year so like no one kill him on the first night <laughs> so um but yeah those things kind of stick in your mind and it as um as all of you were talking earlier i wondered whether you know the experience of having played maybe a few games in the case of some of you um with the same group of people it's going to be uh, maybe it makes that group understandable but i have no idea what the experience is of being used to one game and then going to a different people who maybe mm-hmm. have different house rules or there's a different port that is worshipped for different reasons or there's the cult of this person always you know puts out too many tendrils so we have a very specific way of like dealing with that or like yeah those different traditions that suddenly seem to sort of gather it's super interesting yeah, I I can't imagine subterfuge outside of our circle uh, at this point. And like watching like some of the uh, video entries from the series you were a part of, Pip. Like, I mean, it was a part part of it's different because because that one's influenced by the fact that everyone is performing in a way. And well, and subterfuge is performative. I guess even that isn't as much of a difference as I thought. But like in that video series, at least people are amplifying both their individual characters, but then the characters they've portrayed within uh, shut up and sit down videos and video ghosts videos and, uh, you know, games media in general, they're all amplifying those characteristics. Uh, But the same thing is happening, you know, even in our games where we're not sort of documenting all this stuff as, as rigorously, but you still end up with people, um, enjoying their moment of taking the stage uh, in, in weird ways. And I, and I find that it's really fun. It's, it, it is cool because it turns people, it, it has this like role-playing dynamic. Uh, but it also, it's one of the things that I think really makes it an unpredictable game because there are moments where people will just, it's the end of Othello, right? Like, you know, Iago has no explanation for why he did it, but by God, we're all going to know. Um and that's kind of what I see happen in these games where like, you know, a trustworthy friend and ally who was, didn't seem to be chasing that victory too, uh, you know, too seriously suddenly creates the most like brutal backstabbing, uh, almost just, you know, just to sort of wield the bloody dagger, uh, over their head. Uh, that's, that's reason enough. That's their game. So what you're saying is we should stream subterfuge. Oh God. <laughs> just, just long six hour periods of people just kind of glancing at their phones every now and again um, I think a kind of a weird thing about especially this ongoing kind of I guess long game that, that our group has been playing is that um, every game usually we have a, you know maybe four to five hangers on from the previous game some of the regulars some you know less regular but you know, people that are experienced with it, a few new people. And then I think almost every single one we've had, uh, like at least one games journalist who is playing the game with the intent of turning out a article for it or a piece or something like that. So we always have this kind of like 
like war correspondent mm-hmm. person that's in there. And it, uh, I mean, Heather kind of, you know, put down the camera, picked up the gun kind of thing and, and killed everybody in ours. But uh, for the most part, it's, you know, you, you play around that knowing that it's going to be put out there to other people and that's going to affect your reputation because, you know, it's going to be public knowledge. People are going to talk about it. I'm going to get called the captain for some reason. There was the cap, the captain and killer. <laughs> <laughs> and Tennille. Yes. I think it's um, that's true whether you've got someone who's sort of documenting it in an, uh, I, I guess, in a official business capacity or not, though, because it one of the things that Subterfuge does well and that any of those games do well is that um, it panders to, I think, our desire to tell those stories collaboratively, even if it's a kind of competitive collaboration you know when you're sort of at the pub afterwards going oh and then you you (laughs) and then that person can you know take up that story and explain their thing maybe you know embellished or you know um with some of the edges sanded down or whatever but it's you know there's there's a really nice element to that that is performative um maybe in a similar way to writing an article afterwards it's just that it's there's there's more voices and it becomes a a shared performance that you tell other friends about and invite them in. Yeah, it's kind of myth-making, really. Mm. So, Nick, why did you get a reputation as a monster that must be destroyed at the start of every game? Because, like, the very first game I ever played, I was told, like, oh, yeah, and Capo will just betray you at the first opportunity, and he must be destroyed as, as quickly as possible. Now, I heard a story. I did hear a story about Nick that somebody begged him not to do any attacks over the course of this. No, like no dead of night attacks over the course of one weekend because somebody was having like, there was a situation uh, like not quite a family medical emergency, but a family medical issue that was going on. (laughs) And all this person asked was, Hey, maybe don't fuck with me this weekend. And then the version I heard, the version of the story I heard was Nick Capizzoli. (laughs) Was like, sorry to hear about your mom. Here's a stack of attacks between two and four in the morning every night this weekend. <laughs> I don't. I don't actually. I don't actually know what that's about. I um, there's you know, the the chat is usually very active in our games. Uh, I wonder if maybe I missed a message somewhere and just kind of continued plowing on doing what I was doing. See, I could believe it, though, uh, because I have had some stuff go down with you. And, like, I first, I've always been struck by how quickly you react to things happening at weird hours. Like, I have scheduled things for 4.15 because I'm like, okay, at least this will give me, like, a two-hour head start before he realizes that, like, my subs have launched. And, like, I'll hear my phone buzz at, like, 4.45, and you've already reacted. Um, or <laughs> I'll just be chilling out and then, like, at... 3.38 in the morning or something, my phone will buzz, and, like, I sort of lean off the bed, pick it up off the floor, and, like, oh, Capo's uh, making his move. Uh, and now I have to get out of bed and go, like, <laughs> run scenarios for 20 minutes in the kitchen uh, before continuing my sleep. That's because, uh, you know, you can you can queue up a lot of moves in the game at once, and uh, that's something I've always, like... Uh, taken, you know, full advantage of. I, I queue up moves usually for, uh, you know, up to a day ahead of time. 
uh, you know, and I'll, I'll make adjustments and, you know, based on what I see after that, but usually just to kind of see it all diagrammed out and then replay it over and over again and make sure that I, you know, really know where I'm moving and see if there's any holes in it and stuff. So I usually have the moves all ready to go. So like, you know, there's a chance that I could not check it for a few hours or, you know, half a day if I'm doing something and someone says, you know, begs off and says, please don't kill me. And I've already got, you know, the, the, the bullet in the chamber, like ready to fire without realizing it. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, the what, well, one thing that happened is I won the first, I think, uh, four games that we played, uh, which, oh, you so know, you were locked I, in as the big bad of subterfuge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's like, I think anything else you see somebody, you know, win a, a few times in a row, you like, you know, you, no one wants to see the Patriots win anymore or something like that. So it's, you know, you're, you're the, the evil empire basically. And, you know, puts a target on your back. Um, yeah, I had won the first, I th- yeah, it was three or four games. We started kind of adding to our regular crew after that. So I don't know if it was always necessarily the same people. But after maybe the last couple, I think that narrative kind of developed. Um, and then after that, I think it's been Nixed pretty much has won every game since. Except he wasn't in this last one. We called it uh, Slappers Only No Nixed was the name of the game. Uh, so he didn't, somehow he didn't win that one, even though he wasn't involved. Um, but uh, he, I think he's got that reputation now. Quinn suffers from that um, whenever we play any type of game. How you saw him in the videos and things is how he tends to play any strategy game. And so you can kind of imagine that um, at the beginning of anything, whether it's totally unrelated, a completely different scenario, there is still that sense of, what say we gather together and not get screwed over by this person again? (laughs) (laughs) I don't do myself any favors, I guess, because uh, the way that I tend to play the game is uh, very uh, literal, I think. Like, I, I think that there's a joke about me being this, like, sinister figure or something like that. But, like, uh, even when I choose to attack somebody or get a group to attack somebody, I tend to do it very, like, just by the books. Like, look, we have more stuff. If we attack this guy, he's not going to be able to defend it. Let's all just go and do it. It's good for all of us kind of thing. And... Uh, I think there's, especially with the, a lot of the regulars, there's an interest in playing that more deceitful layer up on top of it, which I tend to not be as involved in, but am a, uh, I guess because of the way I play, a very easy mark for it. Yeah, to that point, I will say, like, so in our game, like, we very clearly established borders pretty early on, you and I, at the very least. And I think we maintained those borders for a really long time until, yeah, uh, <laughs> until the yeah. unfortunate uh, happenings. But, like, we even had... <laughs> We even had this situation where we were starting to build up or generate a lot of miners at those two um, uh, kind of, we both had kind of two uh, facilities, both on this borderline. And eventually we were just like, this is absurd. Like we, like we have to not have this many forces here. We need to back off. And like you respected that, which was, which was pretty great. And then I was able to back off and like, I held off until it became really advantageous for me to do something. So like, in terms of talking about how like you play things really straight, like that's definitely something that's observable. Um, yeah, where, I, I whereas, was very literal about it too. I yeah. think I said like we both; these are all factories. It doesn't do. We had we played a, a, a map that was randomized, so there ended up being a lot less generators, which made them very very important to have. Uh, everyone had a lot of factories, uh, and so there's a kind of a diminishing returns point with the factories uh, because you don't have enough cap, so you get cut off and you can't build any more units there. So I think I said, like, you know, there's really no advantage to us having each other's factories. We still can't build if we hit the cap. So we, you know, I was, you know, put it all on the table and then play like that. 
Right. It's those, it's especially those decisions between figuring out like, cause everybody has those emotional motivations. I, I, I suppose, cause you, you get those messages from people at night who are like, Hey, how about we try this thing? And then you have other people who are just like, you know what? Numbers wise, this is not practical for me to do at all. So I'm not going to do that. Um, and it seems to be like, that's a very clear split in, in terms of us talking about how people handle their play styles. You have people who are sort sort of doing the math and then sort of people who are, um, uh, just listening to like the the rage in their heart. <laughs> what do you think your playstyle is, Heather? Because like obviously Nick has his uh, dirtbag thing going on. <laughs> <laughs> I can't shake it. I'm trying so hard in this podcast. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm so not. It's still, it's just clinging to me. So <sighs> I like that's. A, I think that's a fair question. I don't really know necessarily. Um, for a large part of the game, uh, I just didn't move from my territory at all um i knew that there was a lot of stuff going on like way further down to my south it was out of my range it was nothing that i could help with um even if i wanted to and so for a long time i had just contacted pretty much everybody who was around me and said hey let's just establish like where we can and cannot go so with nick that meant we have this hard borderline here let's not cross it and then eventually hey our forces are building up to here let's de-escalate and for you know somebody up to my north at the start of the game we were both pushing towards another outpost and i think i was going to lose that fight when that fight happened so i said just like okay, fine. This initial fight, let's not turn it into anything that's like a feud. You can have that outpost and then we can just establish lines around that outpost. For a very long time, I just didn't want to cause trouble because I was like super scared. Because um, I feel like, because I, I was dropping into a game with people who had a fair amount more experience. And when you drop into a game, especially if you're not really like a strategy game player, which I don't particularly play a lot of strategy games. Um, I, I like, I'm not good at micromanaging numbers really scare me. Um, so like in those situations, like I just didn't want to mess around too much. And then I think it comes back to that thing again, where eventually I figured out that there was kind of an opportunity to do something, um, and it wasn't anything I could do alone. So like very cl close to the end of the game, I said like, hey, if you guys all drop mines and we all spread out our forces like very quickly, I can hopefully outproduce everybody else and like end the game. Because there's also that point in subterfuge where everybody goes like, we are done. This war uh -huh. has gone on too long. We are all beating <laughs> each other up. Everybody has, you know, the thousand yard stare. And, you, and, and if you can. So the thing that I that I think was important was being able to go to people with a concrete plan and to say, Hey, this can just be done and we can like sleep. And I think, <laughs> I think that was a very compelling argument. I don't know how, if that translates to like a consistent play style, I'm definitely not playing this game for a while. Um, <laughs> Cause boy, gosh, I checked my phone constantly, but um, I, I, I kept very passive except for that. The one, uh, time with nick where like eventually I, I, like yeah. i really went in but yeah but you also <laughs> like you almost spoiled me at the end so at the end of our round i was starting to coordinate with people around me to build mines so that i could just generate enough resources to end the game and so we had the other player who was getting all the funding who had built up enough that their production was going to outpace mine and right near the end nick you launched a sub towards one of my mines and it was going to capture it for about two hours and within even that two hour time frame, because things were so close, that would have been enough to spoil my win. 
Yeah, Joe um, would have won. Yeah, and then and then you capped the mine right after that. I think yeah. which put you ahead. And then yeah. I, I like I was very fortunate too because I had another one that I was going up towards near the end that I could have for like six hours before the end of the game, which also would have helped. But honestly, that's an interesting thing about subterfuge too. Is like even when you're basically like functionally out. So like we had really contained you, Nick. Depending on when you had maybe sent that sub, you could have completely altered the game. Yeah, it's that's been a, a I think a staple feature of the last couple. Rob intimately knows the experience of me doing that in one of ours, um, where uh, I was functionally out of the game again, uh, and I took really early took all of my stuff. Uh, I put it in I put it in two boats, uh, and I sent them sailing. And then you know, talking about the performative aspect, I, I chronicled the journeys of my my ship as it flew away from its home planet to go colonize I hadn't one. even done anything and... to you is the thing like it was <laughs> it was the most like there were people who had screwed you over who deserved yes to have their like games ruined you walked in, like <laughs> I, you this know, was uh, you walked into I had just finally vanquished somebody I've been fighting with the entire game like I had just their capital had just fallen I had just taken their specialist prisoner I had just become like a great power within the game and was ready to start like make a fast turn toward end game yeah rob the 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 problem for rob was that he had a bunch of these big fat laden spanish galleons full with specialists that he had just taken from this guy and i had my little you know very swift fleet of of corsairs that were kind of coming down into the area and i saw an opportunity and i just threw everything at him as he was returning with all of his spoils from war and uh, i took i think I, i had at that point like I caught like 23 specialists or something like that. And I took them all and landed them right on the corner of Rob's territory and he couldn't get rid of me, basically. I think that's one of the most compelling things about the game then is that like even within the grand meta narrative of who wins, you have those micro stories where you really do at least manage to affect one thing or another. Unless you like really sit down and turtle like you and you don't do anything, I think there are still moments, even if it just means dealing with a neighbor or kind of messing with somebody late into the match to kind of mess with their rhythm or their pacing. I think the thing I found most compelling about subterfuge is the fact that you always at least have, or it feels like you always at least have a move that can have a demonstrable effect on a player maybe not in the long run but at least in the moment to cause um to cause trouble or to bolster somebody else it's really really interesting yeah and speaking of that play actually i uh, my whole plan for that was actually to uh knock off uh nixt who was on route to winning that game because i wanted to take all the stuff that i pillaged and then run it up into his territory and cap a mine like i tried against you heather uh but he i think he's played enough games with me at this point that he saw the move coming uh got i think rob kind of involved in pinning me in to where i was in his territory and then ran all of his stuff back really fast and dropped mines before i could get there and defended it it's um it's a different and shorter experience but that element of it really reminds me of cosmic encounter where you know you can be in that position of okay well i clearly can't win at this juncture but i sure as heck can do this thing that means that you can't win and you screwed me (laughs) over and i get to exact my revenge in a way that suits me and then i'm going to have a biscuit (laughs) so i've lived my best life and it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I um just the code of that story, uh Nixed um did sort of hold out hope that like he would help me contain and eliminate the uh the, the Capazoli threat. And after I'd irrevocably committed my forces to containing uh Nick, uh Nixed vanished. Uh, it was very Braveheart, the cavalry departing the field. Um, and yep. Yep. and I told you he was going to do it, too. I lost my shit. Like, I just, I, I just flipped out uh, because, like, it was a weekend. This is, you know, you're talking about, you are talking earlier, Heather, about people just having had enough. This is a game that, like, if you're really giving it your all... Within the first three days, you're exhausted. Like, you're just tired uh, because you're constantly... Well, those 4 a.m. things are a real, like, genuine pain and really affect how you think as well. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. And, like, it does weird things to your like, your psyche. Like, I invented... Uh, I, I invented an enemy in that same game. Uh, like, I invented a mastermind that I was fighting. It was two novice players who fucked up. And... <laughs> like to salvage what was going to be just a colossal mistake, uh, one of them gifted their fleet to the other uh, because they'd sent the fleet in the wrong place and was basically throwing away their entire army on a suicide attack. And they were like, wait, I don't want to get eliminated. Uh, how about you just take these as a gift and we'll settle the balance later? But I saw that move and I was like, by God. They've been working together this whole time. <laughs> and I just lost my freaking mind for like... The next day and a half, I was consumed by, like, how was I going to destroy these two? Like, because clearly the, like, oh, like, I'm just a novice player, I don't know what I'm doing thing, was just an act. Was just an act to get people to go easy on them. They knew exactly what they were doing. So I just, like, like I, like, breathed and slept and dreamed of revenge, uh, against these players, and I did get it. I launched like there was this massive. It's how like the the Spanish galleon, the treasure fleet. They were moving this massive stack of forces somewhere else in their empire, and I dimly saw it. And I had a martyr and a pirate, um, which is like your perfect combo for overtaking an enemy fleet with a suicide bomber. Yeah, pirate pirates are the only unit in the game that can um, attack a ship that's in mid. Uh, route to an area they can target it and fly straight in the line and so and if you combine them with a martyr it's amazing yup and so they had like 400 uh troops basically a huge stack uh stack of 400 starting to move but they were doing this one epic move from like one side of the empire to the other and i was like well the hell with you you lying, conniving little sneaksy hobbit. Like, I'm going to get you for, for this. And so I launched this um this this martyr strike that took 21 hours to unfold. Like for an entire day, I'm just watching this martyr cruise toward its target and like just felt the most serene like peace like about the entire thing. Like no matter what else happened, they were going to lose those ships. They didn't deserve to have those ships because of their treachery. Um, and so I was going to destroy them, <laughs> but the, the, the flip side of that is you're exhausted by like the middle of a subterfuge game. A lot of people are, um, I think one of the reasons Nixed uh, wins so many of our games is he's indefatigable, uh, at, at this game. Like he, I, I think he draws strength from this shit show. <laughs> um, but, 
by the end, people are willing to like, it sounds to me like Heather, you, you just sort of offered to be the one to bring a close to subterfuge with you, you and the league because you were best positioned to do it. But that was your pitch and people signed up, up for that. People were like, yes, I will lose this game, but I'll end it with you. Right. And it's, it's, it, I wasn't sure if that was the right thing to do because it's definitely that thing where maybe people just want to keep on fighting. Who knows? Um, but it had gone on long enough, I, I think. And I, and I was very fortunate. Um, I was very lucky that enough people were like, yeah, we're, we're done. But for a while I thought still people would want to slug it out for as long as possible. Um, I wasn't really sure. I think it's a genuine strategy, though, to be the person that people would hate to lose to the least. That's that, yeah, that's real say. mileage in that. <laughs> I don't because I don't think that pitch works for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I would never sign on to help Quinns win anything ever. I love him dearly, but I will not help him win a game. <laughs> I need to play a game with Quinns. We need we need the Quinns Nick Alliance. <laughs> Yeah, it, just us against the world. Except he would, he would betray. You. I mean, it would be the worst. It would be, it would be the Molotov uh, Ribbentrop Pact of of subterfuge. Um, I mean, here here's my other question. Like, does this? I, I guess my question is twofold. Um, is there a slightly more like? Is there a slightly crunchier version of subterfuge? A slightly like more involved strategy game version of subterfuge that is better in some ways right like does this work if you make it if you tie it to a more complicated game or does that somehow break the equilibrium that subterfuge achieves and related to that like does subterfuge maybe hint at the fact that maybe we ask the wrong things of in-game diplomacy systems maybe we prioritize the wrong kinds of behavior uh when it comes to designing for uh like diplomacy you sort of raised this a little when you asked me to to be on the podcast and um, something that I found myself thinking about this morning was just about whether it could do with a few more options um, in terms of people who would like to fulfill some kind of role in a game like this and, and not be left out of those sort of social moments you know the ones where people are talking about this amazing time they had down the pub or you know that that kind of thing but without forcing them into a situation that can make them so horribly uncomfortable mm -hmm. or that can actually do damage in friendships so sort of whether they could do with you know maybe i i don't know like an information broker um character or you know just some other things that don't necessarily have a victory condition but that have a role and a meaningful role um this is um i'm sorry rob this is kind of the thing that you were talking about with uh civilization mm -hmm. right with the um as it tries to come into the new era as it tries to get away from this colonialist kind of um uh you know shrewd uh you know come pillage and take for yours so that you can win and beat everybody else kind of mentality uh I mean, subterfuge, I guess, it's in the same boat, so to speak. I think, and I'm spitballing here, so when I think of diplomacy systems, I just think of single-player games, and one of the big flaws of any sort of system is that you have to codify something, you have to make it strict, and diplomacy can be very, very fickle. Mm -hmm. And so I think in terms of 
I'd like, and I don't know what these features would look like in terms of subterfuge, but ways to make more definite um, actions or agreements that seem like not necessarily binding because betrayal is such a, a, a key thing. But I think there's not as many ways to, to make a lot of meaningful gestures um, in terms of maybe solidifying things with allies or, or things like that. Like you can send gifts and that's about it. And maybe if there was another way to, to communicate or, or coordinate or, or pool in some way, um, that would have been really nice because I, I don't think gifts and funding completely cut it. Um, but I don't know what those other things would look like. Well, it might be quite nice to have something like, you know, a, a, an official, um, like a, a templated document, you know, an in-game digital document that says that you have both agreed to particular, you know, uh, things. You know, it might just be a tiny thing where you each get to write one thing down on this whatever piece of digital paper and then you both put your subterfuge signature on it. <laughs> but and, and obviously that, that doesn't mean that you can't instantly betray it, but it would be quite nice to have that as an artifact that you can then you know, point to or maybe share with other people and say, well, hang on, we have actually signed this thing. You know, it's, I, I don't know whether that would change anything at all, but I, I, as someone who quite likes, you know, the idea of artifacts that, that build into this little world, it's, there's, there's very little of that in subterfuge because it's all, you know, either external to the game or, or within chat systems that are very, as you say, they're not definite exactly i wonder if that just leads to now in every single argument about a betrayal that happens afterwards someone saying look you signed your name <laughs> so much <laughs> oh, just printing right and gesturing <laughs> like, like... shaking papers around <laughs> well, well i mean I, I think i don't know like maybe that gives you a, a much better claim like let's say some sort of war breaks out like having a doc i don't know like a document or some some way to point and say like no 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 like i have causes belly here is is really compelling instead of like maybe just trying to be like uh maybe something happened like having a way to definitively argue that case um seems interesting mm. to me again i don't know how that would really manifest though well for example with um with the situation with nick if if the the person had been able to point to a treaty that nick had signed that said he wouldn't attack between the hours of two and four over this weekend <laughs> <That's true. laughs> then you know that would that would uh, absolutely paint him as a monster in the most definite terms so you know <laughs> useful rob I, uh, rob I don't know if three moves ahead uses uh titles for each episode but this one should definitely be called the situation with nick <laughs> yeah um I think there's definitely like I, I think you're you're all onto something. This idea that you can like if games allowed more latitude for rewarding you and directing you uh, toward your own objectives uh, that aren't necessarily this winner take all uh, model. Because like at least where when real people are involved, like that's just not how most of like that's not how most of us operate. Like observably in in the games I played, like most of the players end up gravitating towards objectives that are not i am somehow going to win this thing uh yeah i'd love to see that formalized in the game actually in a, in a hypothetical subterfuge too like if if at the start of a game instead of it just being um you know mine 200 neptunium or um capture all the outposts we've never done a capture all the outposts game that sounds like hell um, but, uh, if, you know, secretly everyone was handed their own very like, yes. you know, board game, part, party game style handed their own, like if your objective was take Chongos uh -huh. by any means necessary, or 
uh, make sure that so-and-so doesn't make it into the top, you know, three or something like that, kill somebody or that kind of thing. And then, you know, you can, you know, play it close to the vest, keep it to yourself, or you can, you know, tell someone else that you've got a different objective or, you know, maybe some people get them, some people don't. I think that would really uh, clutter the whole thing up and make it a real mess, which would be fun. Or objectives that are sort of um, maybe closer to the idea of, of defending or maintaining, because sometimes that is what diplomacy in the real world is about. It's not so much, you know, gaining ground, it's keeping, or it's, yep. you know, it's, it's stopping other people from taking, or it's, you know, gradually building up alignments. And obviously that sort of doesn't make it so much of an easy sell, but maybe it's something that, you know, on your fourth game, it starts to sort of suggest, okay, well, do you want to have that you know the core objective that we always say is the objective or you know do you want one of these three that you are you as a character are going for and then you know introduces that uncertainty in that regard and also this sense that perhaps you as a a leader of a particular faction have an actual flavor as well like a kind of okay well we're more of a an entrenched position that we are trying to safeguard or we are more of an expansionist you know ideology or we are more this so you know the the funny thing is um i think the paradox games actually do do this and i think this is one of the reasons that people who do fall into them end up sort of placing them above a lot of other strategy games because in a, your tra- in a lot of your traditional model uh, that you find in a lot of board games and definitely in like civilization and its ilk even if there are different victory conditions, right? Oh, I'm going for the scientific victory, blah, blah, blah. It's still saying within that game that there can only be one. Like, only one person is going to achieve a victory condition first, and that's going to end the game. And ergo, uh, nothing that anybody else did in this game has any value or meaning. Uh, so, like, doesn't matter if, yeah, you were, you're working on your culture victory. You built an amazing civilization packed to the rafters with uh, cultural wonders and works of art, and your people are just, you know, wicked happy. It's great. Uh, doesn't matter. Um, somebody went into space. So go to hell. Uh, and that's how a lot of games end up. And it also means that if you begin to feel like your victory condition is not attainable in the, in the time allotted, again your actions moving forward like don't have any intrinsic meaning. And I think in Subterfuge, what you see people doing is they're finding ways to have intrinsic meaning, uh, if only to themselves uh, and, and to other players that don't necessarily have to do with the objectives of the game. The e, like EU4 does this as well. Like you might make a play for becoming uh, a colossal like uh, European continent-spanning uh, super empire. You might make a play for that. And then you might get completely blown up trying to do that. And, you know, the next thing you know, it's, you know, 1700, your empire is a shambles and you don't see a way back. Well, what are you going to do next? Eh, Maybe you pivot to becoming a trade empire. Uh, Maybe you play Kingmaker and just try to carve out uh, some kind of, uh, you know, minor empire or or, uh, sphere of influence in part of Germany. And that becomes your new objective. And that still has meaning in the game. The game still recognizes that. Uh, even if other people are playing for different stakes, what you're doing still matters. Um, I think Subterfuge, in a way, operates in that same way. And I think it's an important... It's both an important insight into what motivates players, but also maybe what motivates diplomatic actors, right? That, like, in most, most, setting, most settings, uh, you're not finding this... 
intensely like extermination oriented zero sum game mentality uh you're finding some combination of self-directed self-directed objectives and interactions with other actors on the board I think it's stuff that, um, in the context of subterfuge, it it maybe makes sense to have more of a you know a zero sum, you know end condition because that's how it's partly how you kind of keep it going and then reach a conclusion. But also the the game itself has relatively simple. Um, bits and pieces that that you know the different components are relatively simple even though you can use them in quite complex ways whereas you know i think that diplomacy perhaps of of the kind that is either more real world oriented or that can go into different um elements like people's own personal uh, i guess victory conditions or what they want out of any given scenario it would maybe be more interesting to have um you know, negotiations in like a multiplayer version of The Sims, right? Where people are kind of, you know, they they want to have their own little, I don't know, vegetable garden, but the neighbours are trying to build a new, you know, extension. And, you know, the the negotiations around that, you know, a bit more of, you know, perhaps what you would get in a real residential area or you know it's but they're also very much more about well I as a player want to do this particular thing to make this area a thing that I enjoy being in even more but you want to do this other thing and it's butting up against that therefore let's figure it out right so games need more nimby politics (laughs) <laughs> well, I think that might be the way to make The Sims 4 something I never play again. Yeah. So I'm really reticent about actually suggesting this. But that's a scenario where those, you know, where where I I could more easily plug in this idea of personal, not even victory conditions, but just personal pleasure conditions right. butting up against each other, right? So... Important thing to note, uh, this game I think is free, right? You can just download it on on the App Store and it's good to go. I think the game's pretty much abandoned. If if you if you pay for it, you're just buying some like sort of luxury items, right? Like the ability to give bonuses to players. Is that it? Uh, also I think to queue up uh, a certain amount of moves ahead of time. Right. Um, Quality I of think life that stuff. I could so- yeah, basically. Yeah, but yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's free to download. There, there's actually a pretty still active population using it. I was surprised. Um, st- definitely a, a few thousand people on there at least. Yeah. So uh, last time I checked, if this conversation has uh, sort of whetted your appetite, uh, I recommend you go you give this a go around at least once, uh, preferably with strangers. Uh, what do you What do y'all think? I, I I like it with friends. I mean, I, I think the you know it, the kind of stuff that we've been talking about that I think you know we we find if not necessarily like uh, pleasurable but interesting about the game, the kind of shared myth making and stuff like that, uh, the histories and the weird you know passions that people bring to it. I think those are all kind of uh, heightened by doing it with with at least a few friends uh, that you have. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's um, it's a, it's a lot of fun. It really is. I liked playing it with, like, regardless of what you see in the video, uh, I actually, I I think I'm 
glad that I played it with friends and not strangers. I would say that the only thing that was that I found, I think the thing I found the most difficult was um, I didn't really know Nels. He was a friend of a friend. And so that it felt quite um, daunting for that to be our first interaction mm -hmm. as humans <laughs> who would then theoretically need to keep seeing each other at various occasions. It was like, um... <laughs> We have actually, there's a few people from our group that uh, I think the other day I saw said that they, they've made friends with the other, you know, yep. people that were, <clears throat> you know, that just in the first game was the first interaction. And they you know, they've kind of rolled in at different circles ahead of that, but now they interact more regularly. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I, I'm amazed that they're able to do that. <laughs> I think if people want to hop in and play, it's pretty good. My advice would be don't be afraid to ask questions. Like, I think everything we, we talk about here might sound a little intimidating in terms of like how many things you have to manage and queuing up actions and and sort of the backstabbing and the politics but i think most people who are playing subterfuge um with a group especially if they're friends i mean they want to have an interesting game and if you if you feel intimidated you can ask questions and you'll hopefully at least get the basic answers you need to to at least have a have a good time there's tutorials and stuff too so if, if people are hearing this and maybe are like i don't know like you have the resources out there that can make this into a into a game that is at the very least interesting there are tutorials in the game as well if i'm remembering rightly yeah, so so they're can... very helpful yeah yeah i think maybe as well there's probably something to be said for playing with non-games journalists because like, yep. we're the worst <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, don't don't play with games, people. Uh, play with good people. Uh, all right. Uh, I think that will do it for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, you can also catch up on what happened uh, in our various playthroughs. Uh, there's a couple Waypoint Radio episodes in which I, um, I some might call it ranting, uh, but I, I share stories of my subterfuge games. Uh, there is the very well-documented uh, Video Ghosts uh, series on subterfuge uh, over on YouTube. Oh, Cool Ghosts. Uh, sorry, cool, <laughs> cool Ghosts. I keep saying Video Ghosts. Uh, cool Ghosts. <laughs> Um, and you can watch for yourself and decide whether or not they are in fact cool. And then you can also read up on Heather's, uh, victorious, uh, first at bat, uh, over on Kotaku.com, um, which I'm, I sometimes read and weep. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of three moves ahead until then, uh, for Pip, for Heather, this is Rob Zachney saying good night. Go to hell, Nick. <laughs> 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 <laughs>